All right, good morning. How are we doing? Fantastic. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm really glad you're here this morning. Uh, it's good to be in God's house. It's a beautiful day, and it's a chance for us to learn more about God. I, um, I was thinking this morning as we were going through worship, um, somebody asked me this week, what, what do you think you've learned the most over the years that you've been following Jesus? And I, I've I thought about that a lot this week. And one of the things I think, I think when I started out trying to learn about Jesus, I thought I would do it with my head. And I thought I'll just figure this out like I figured out everything else in my life. I'll study it and then I'll understand it. And then I'll come to a rational decision. And I found out along the way that as I studied this book, I began to fall in love with the author and and I began to develop a relationship. And then I thought, okay, in that relationship, I just got to be a better person. I'll just stir it up within me. I'll decide to quit doing the things I used to do. I'll try to please God. I'll just be a better person. And I learned that that's not what he wants. What I've learned over the years that I've been following Christ is that it's all about surrender. And the more I surrender me, the more I get rid of me, the more I get rid of my pride, my ego, my self-reliance, the more I release that, the more the Holy Spirit can flow through me to other people. And that's really what we're talking about in this series. I'm in a series right now where we're looking at the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is basically getting us out of the way So the spiritual things of God can flow through us to the world so that they don't see us, they see the God that we love and Jesus and they say, wow, that's that's the kind of love I've never seen before. And it draws them to Christ. Now, if you're new, let me tell you about spiritual fruit for just a minute. Jesus promised those who trusted in him, those who gave their life to him, that they would receive the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit would manifest in their life certain changes. And those changes would be the stamp of evidence that the Holy Spirit is active and present in their life. And Paul called that spiritual fruit. The evidence of a life transformed by Jesus Christ. And he said that his followers would produce fruit in their lives, not the kind of goodness and kindness that we know, but supernatural fruit. The the kind of thing that you look at and you go, that is not of this world. Paul says it this way, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there's no law. Now, we've said that we want more of these things in our lives. When we started the series, I asked you, wouldn't you want to have more of this in your life? And we all said, yes, we would. And Jesus promises that in our lives. He promises you will experience this if you abide in me. You see, when you decide to develop a relationship with me, when you stay connected to me, this is the evidence of you abiding with me. You begin, as you get into this relationship, you begin to desire more what he wants than what you want. You begin to gain his perspective on what's going on in the world and surrendering to it. A critical point I want to make sure everybody understands. You cannot grow spiritual fruit on your own. You can't will yourself to be more joyful or more peaceful or more loving. You you can make some effort, but it'll always fall short. 
That's why you haven't been able to do it yet. Let me state it another way. If you don't surrender to Jesus as your Savior, you'll never experience these fruits. You may try to drum them up on your own, but they'll always fall short of what God planned for you in your life. These are God's gifts to those who have faith in Jesus and trust Jesus as their Savior. Spiritual fruit grown only by the Holy Spirit of God. Our lives, if, if, if surrendered, become the garden and the soil that God can use to manifest himself to other people. But the Holy Spirit must be experienced. The Holy Spirit makes no sense to anyone until they experience his presence in their life. You see, until you experience God's love, you think you know love. You think you know peace until you experience God's peace. You think you know joy until you're filled with the joy of the Lord. Jesus promised those who trusted him that they would be guaranteed to receive the Holy Spirit. But the spiritual fruit of that relationship is conditional. Your salvation is not conditional. It's based on faith in Jesus alone. But the fruit of that relationship not surprisingly, is dependent on how much time you invest in that relationship. It's true of every relationship you've ever had. The more you invest in a relationship, the more that relationship blooms. The more you pull away from it, the more it dries up. It's the same thing with God. The relationship and salvation is guaranteed through your faith, but the fruit of that relationship is not. Can you imagine living your entire reborn spiritual life and never experiencing what the Holy Spirit really had planned for you? I mean, can you imagine getting to the end of your life, being with Jesus and go, oh my, oh my, I had so much planned for you and you were too busy. You, you, come on in, but man, you missed it. There's so much for you. Every moment, Jesus said, having the Holy Spirit in us is better than having him on earth walking with all of us. The condition that unlocks the fruit of our relationship with Jesus is actually having a relationship with Jesus. A lot of people come to church, they serve in church, we clean up on Sundays, we carry the book, dust it off. We have some words we can say, we can have some spiritual stuff, we'll put a fish on our car, maybe wear a cross wherever we go. We'll do all kinds of things to get the world to believe that we have a relationship with Christ, but we're not with Christ. We have to let him be both our Savior through faith and our Lord through relationship. So this week, as we study spiritual fruit more, we talked about love last week. This week, we're going to talk about goodness and kindness. The fruit of the Spirit is goodness and kindness. As the Holy Spirit grows in our lives, our lives, our spirit becomes filled with God's goodness. And then it overflows to other people as kindness. Kindness that is undeserved. Kindness with no strings attached. I want to take us back to a story in the Old Testament. A story that shows how God's kindness flows out of those with the Spirit. I want to take you back to a thousand years or so before God, Jesus, came to earth. And before we start this history lesson, and that's what it is, by the way, 
When we study the Old Testament, it's a history lesson. It's not a story lesson. It's not a fable lesson. These are moments in history, days in history where these events happened. Why are we here? We're here because on a Friday afternoon, God went on a cross and died for us on a day in history and then resurrected. I want you to know there are so many parallels between King David's story and the story of the Messiah that it's almost overwhelming when you study it. Several hundred years before our story, God led the Jewish nation from Egypt to the promised land. He wanted the Jewish nation to be different from every other earthly nation. God directed a prophet named Samuel to appoint his children as judges over the nations. That was Samuel's job. He was a prophet. But the people said, no, 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 we want a king. We want a king. We don't want, we want a, all the other nations have a king. We need a king. And God reminded them, I'm your king. You don't need an earthly king. You've got me. I'm your king. But they wanted an earthly king. Samuel the prophet warned them about what would happen if they gave up God and basically chose an earthly king. He said, you're God's people. You already have a king. He took you out of Egypt. Where were you? God's your king. No earthly king can take his place. That's what makes you unique as a nation. I'm your God. I'm your king. When people see the nation of Israel, they'll see me. And they'll want me as their king instead of an earthly king. But the people, the people, they didn't realize that there's no earthly king can care for them the way God cares for them. And so Samuel's told to warn them, he's going to take all your stuff. This king is going to operate in the flesh. He's going to serve himself at your expense. It won't go well for you, God told them. If you reject me as king and choose a man to be your king, it's not going to go well. In fact, Samuel even tells him, when this goes bad, you're going to cry out to God, but he's not going to respond. Where have we seen this before? It's the same thing Adam and Eve did. God, we don't want you as our king. We got this. Leave us alone. We want to be our own king. We're going to use our minds, God. We're going to figure out everything. We don't need you. You go away. The original rebellion was man's desire to be in charge of himself. Sometimes God gives us what we want to lead us to what we really need. People rejected God and they wanted their own king. And the people saw a man named Saul. He was tall, he was strong, he was dark, he was handsome. He looked like a king. He looked good on the outside. Saul's made king. He looked the part on the outside, even though he was hiding. It's another thing. But he was essentially completely psychotic. He was a horrible king. But amazingly, he had a very impressive son named Jonathan. Jonathan was incredible. It would seem to most that they were just waiting for Saul to stop being king so Jonathan could be the next king. He was, after all, the king's son. He's next in line. Brave and successful in battle, seemed to be a natural-born leader. Jonathan was next in line, but then God said, no, it's time for me to shape the destiny of my people. 
1 Samuel 16.1, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. You know where Samuel's going? Bethlehem. He's going to Bethlehem to anoint a king. Not a king that's a king right now, a king that'll be a king when he grows up. Hmm. He brings in all of Jesse's sons. None of them play the part. None of them seem to be the one. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on the appearance or the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And after going through what he thinks are all the sons, they finally send for the youngest one. And when they sent and brought him in, he was ruddy. He had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him for this is he. Samuel took the horn of oil and he anointed him in the midst of his brothers. I'm sure that went well. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Now this is critical. From that day forward, David is empowered with the Holy Spirit. We don't know exactly what age he was on because there's some debate about the chronicity of this particular part of Scripture. But he was young. Too young to be king, but anointed to become the king when the day is right. Hmm. Full of the Holy Spirit. Now, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would descend upon somebody for a specific purpose. But in this case, the Spirit rested upon David from a young age. David lived almost all of his life empowered by the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine what an advantage that must have been? I hope so, because that's what we're empowered by. Study his life. Study David's life. And you'll see every fruit of the Spirit manifested in an incredible way. Look at the next verse. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Do you notice where the harmful spirit came from? Ooh. That's a whole nother sermon. We're not going to get into that tonight, today. Now, David's been anointed. He's been set aside to one day be king, but he's still a young boy. He's still just as much God's chosen one. And Saul remains king, but without the spirit of God to guide him. Remember Adam and Eve? Humans trying to be kings without God's help. The Holy Spirit departed. The true king waited for the fullness of time so the Messiah could step back in when the time was right. David is anointed king just as the Messiah was anointed to be king, all in God's timing. David would be king empowered by the Holy Spirit, foreshadowing Jesus, who is the Holy Spirit, returning to bring the Spirit to all of us. Then Saul is afraid to fight the Philistines. So David shows up at age 12, and crazy Saul is more eager to give David his armor and send him out to battle. How did David have enough faith to kill Goliath? He's only 12 years old. Where did that faith come from? He was empowered by the Holy Spirit. 
We're going to understand in a while the spiritual fruit of faithfulness. David had supernatural faith that didn't come from him. In fact, as I said before, study David. You'll see every, every spiritual fruit. He danced with joy before the Lord. He showed patience when he had opportunities to destroy Saul. It's incredible. In the meantime, crazy Saul is out spending all his time trying to kill David. Why? Because he knows he's the anointed one. David's a young boy. Goliath didn't do it. Maybe something else will do it. Think about Jonathan, though. Imagine Jonathan during all this. He was supposed to be next in line for be the king. His dad's crazy. And yet David is the rising star. How would you expect Jonathan to feel? How would you feel? Jonathan has every reason to be jealous. We'd expect him to hate David. You see, when someone takes something that you believe should be yours, it almost always causes conflict. We expect him to hate David. It would seem they should be rivals, but God has created a bond in these two men. As soon as he'd finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Jonathan may have loved David, but Saul was an evil spirit. Evil spirits always want to destroy God's anointed one. Saul wanting to destroy David is very similar to a bunch of babies who were destroyed in Bethlehem years later. Jonathan and David begin to realize this is all serious. He really wants to kill him. Now, Jonathan has a problem. He knew what was customary. If David was to become king, usually the new king would execute every person in the royal family and any descendant that could threaten their throne. See, Jonathan knew. When David becomes king, the first thing he should do Kill me. It was expected. Kind of like the mob today, right? Eliminate any chance of a revolt. No second string quarterback for fans to turn to. Jonathan knew the custom. Jonathan really trusted David, though. And Jonathan goes to his friend David and he says, I need a promise of kindness. 1 Samuel 20, 13. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. Show me unfailing kindness like that of the Lord as long as I live. Do you see what he's saying? I know what the world's telling you to do. I need you to exhibit the supernatural fruit of kindness that comes only from the Lord. I need you to do what the world would not do. I need you to show me kindness of the Lord as long as I live so that I may not be killed. He knows. Everybody in the world is going to tell you to kill me. I need you to rise above the world and exhibit that supernatural fruit of your Holy Spirit called kindness. Do not ever cut off your kindness from my family. 
Not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. He says, David, I need kindness. I need undeserved kindness. I need you to promise me. Essentially saying, we're good, right? Promise me you won't kill me. But also promise me that your kindness will extend to my family. David does become king. And we'll see that not only has the Holy Spirit grown in him supernatural faithfulness, it also grows in him a heart of goodness that overflows to others as kindness. Kindness and goodness. Similar, right? In the first century, goodness was referred to someone who was morally upright. Goodness is in man is not a mere passive quality, but it's a deliberate preference of right-wrong. The firm, persistent resistance to moral evil and choosing and following moral good. That's what goodness means. It means that I'm going to choose to do the moral thing. Someone who can control their passions. Goodness is a condition of the heart. We say it a lot. They have a good heart. Supernatural goodness means they're morally solid, unwavering in godly principles. In fact, goodness is a euphemism for God. For years, people didn't want to say God's name, so they said, thank goodness. Goodness knows. Goodness gracious. Honest to goodness. My goodness. Years ago, we were concerned about using God's name inappropriately. Goodness substituted for the essence of God. The best description of goodness is this. God's being quoted here. I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all of my will. Goodness is man chasing God's heart. That's what it means. Because as the Holy Spirit grows in us, we chase God's heart. We want what he wants. And goodness is somebody who's living their life passionately pursuing the heart and desires of God. Kindness. Kindness, on the other hand, is the actions that come out of that good heart. If our hearts are full of supernatural goodness, if we're chasing the heart of God, our actions are going to overflow to people as kindness. So for our purposes, goodness is who you are on the inside. Kindness is an outward expression of your inner goodness. They're linked. You have to have goodness in your heart to be able to pour kindness out to other people. You can't pour kindness out of a ugly heart. James would probably say, if your heart's chasing Jesus, your actions will follow. Mark Twain once said this, kindness is a language that deaf people can hear and blind people can see. You just know it when you see it. It's there. In fact, in the first century, Christians and kindness were almost interchangeable words. In the Greek, krestos meant Kind. Christos meant Christ. In the first century, believers were so kind that people didn't know if they were calling themselves followers of Christ or followers of kindness. 
Kindness was such a part of their essence, people couldn't tell the difference. I wonder today if people think Christians and kindness go together. I wonder if we could just insert kindness and not miss a beat. Remember, our actions speak louder than our words. Back to our story. Saul and Jonathan are killed in battle. David's crowned king. Fast forward a few years. David's well-established as king. He has power and influence. He begins to remember the promise that he has with Jonathan. Jonathan's dead, but there were two parts to the promise. David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? As David promised, he didn't kill Jonathan or Jonathan's family. And he's asking, I I promised to pour out kindness. Is there anybody left? Now, there was a servant in the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, yes, I'm your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Stop for a minute. What kindness is he going to show him? Kindness of God. He didn't say, bring somebody I can show my kindness to. He said, I've got this supernatural goodness flowing through me, and I'm going to share the kindness of God to someone. Ziba said to the king, there's still a son of Jonathan, but he's crippled in his feet. Young man is named Mephibosheth. It's Jonathan's son. He's still alive. We know from Scripture that on the day Saul and Jonathan were killed, Mephibosheth tried to flee the palace and he fractured his legs and he didn't have them fixed and he was disabled for life. Crippled in his feet. Now Ziba's response carries with it a bit of sarcasm, kind of condescending. What he's really telling David is he's not a threat to you, he's crippled. He's not going to be king. You don't need to kill him, he's okay. He's crippled. Don't have to worry about him. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him out of the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Now, remember, places are important. Lodabar. If you're studying the Bible, don't go past this. Look it up. What does that mean? Well, low means no, and debar means pasture. This is a wasteland. He's in a desolate, forsaken area that nobody goes to because you can't grow there. You can't feed your animals there. You can't live there. Where is the son of the exiled king? He's in Lodabar. He's a disabled man spending his life in a nowhere place. Do you know why? He knows the custom. He knows one day the king is going to remember that I'm here. He likely doesn't know of the promise David made to his father. All he knows is I'm the descendant of a king who's exiled. I'm getting out of here. I'm going to go to Lodabar. I'm going to hang low. I'm a deer in deer season. I am moving out. Trying to live a stealth life in a nowhere place, fearing one day. One day when the king remembers, 
and sends for him. Then one day those fears come true. The king has found him in his desolate hiding place. Last thing he wanted to do is be found. Please don't miss the parallels between his situation and ours. Many of us have hidden ourselves in desolate places, hoping not to be found by the king. But this king has found him hiding, and he wants to see him. And Jonathan or uh, Mephibosheth has to be thinking, he's going to kill me. He found me. Imagine his thoughts on the journey going back. I've been trying to hide, but now I'm discovered. I'm broken, crippled, powerless before the king. I'm probably going to die because I was born into a different kingdom. Does that sound familiar to anybody? I'm in a desolate place. I deserve death. I've been discovered. I'm broken. I'm powerless. Because honestly, I've been following a different kingdom. You say, wait a minute. David said he was going to pour out kindness. We don't know if that message was ever relayed. Kings were known to lie, by the way. Remember Herod? Show me where the boy is so I can go worship him too. When the king invited you to the palace, that was like being invited to the Gambino mansion. The mob boss tells you they're repainting the floor. Just sit over there where the tarp is. We have to protect the floor from spaghetti sauce. Uh Uh-huh, okay. But Mephibosheth is powerless. The king found him. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. Now, you have to understand, Mephibosheth has to be scared to death. He's crippled. He can't run. He's weak. He's dependent. He knows what he deserves. He's standing before a king. He's standing before a warrior. David killed a bear and a lion and Goliath before the age of 12. He fought and led armies. He's totally powerful. He's king. He can do whatever he wants to me. And you miss what happens here if you miss Mephibosheth's absolute terror. He must have been shaken. It's obvious he was scared. Look at David's next words. David said to him, do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you will eat at my table always. And he paid homage and he said, what is your servant that I should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Who who am I that you, King David, would bring me into your home? Note a few key points here. He's being shown kindness not because of what he's done. Not because of what he deserves. Not because of what the world says he should do. He's showing kindness because somebody else died. David's love for Jonathan is poured out as kindness to his family. The only reason Mephibosheth has any seat at the table of the king is because his dad did something. Note that what has been taken from him, the land of Saul, is given back to him. 
Its place at the king's table is restored. David essentially adopts him. He brings Mephibosheth into the king's family. And note the word always. You will always be. This is a lifelong commitment. David has never given up on him. And note Mephibosheth's response. I am so unworthy. I'm a dead dog. Can you imagine what it must have felt like? To know you deserve to die, to know you're totally unworthy, to be helpless and totally at the mercy of the king, and then because of what someone else has done for you, you live forever and you're adopted into the king's family. And your place at the king's table is secure. Imagine that. We'll come back to it. Now imagine the dinner scene that night. Mephibosheth carries in, hobbles in, sits down. He's crippled. He's overlooked. And he's at the same table with David's sons. There's Amnon. He's the clever one. Absalom, he's tall, handsome, strong, self-assured. They say he'll be the next king. Solomon, the dude's smart. His great knowledge, Joab, one of David's soldiers, Tamar, his most beautiful daughter. And then the weakest of all, sharing the table with the beautiful, the power, the brilliant ones, is Mephibosheth. Because the king's kindness has been poured out on him. He knows he doesn't deserve to be there. Imagine Mephibosheth's prayer of thanks that night as he sits at a table covered in grace. David was empowered with the Holy Spirit. There's a goodness that grew in him, a supernatural fruit that filled his heart. He didn't have to help Mephibosheth. And truthfully, David in and of himself probably wouldn't have. Without the Spirit of God, he probably would have had him killed. But the Holy Spirit working through David said, no, there's a higher plane to live on here. There's a bigger meaning. David's heart was chasing God's. No one knew about the covenant David made with Jonathan. Jonathan's dead. Only David knew. You see, David was kind when no one was watching. The Spirit of God was upon him. He was full of goodness. It poured out to him. So what can we learn about this story about bearing good fruit? If you want to think about the supernatural goodness flowing through somebody... Think about Mother Teresa. She spent her life pouring out the supernatural fruit of kindness. Mother Teresa. She embodied and became the icon for God's goodness and kindness. She was born in Macedonia in 1910. At the age of 40, she started Missionaries of the Charity. Its mission to care for the hungry, the naked, and the homeless. The crippled, the blind, the lepers. All those who feel unwanted, unloved, and anybody who feels uncared for, come one, come all. People who were a burden to society and are shunned by everyone, she says, come. Come, Jesus is here. In 1950, they started with 13 people in Calcutta. She won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1979. She refused the conventional ceremonial banquet given to Nobel laureates. And she asked that the $192,000 in funds be given to the poor in India, stating that earthly rewards were important only if they helped her with the world's needy. 
She wrote many letters in her life, but she demanded they all be destroyed. She didn't want people talking about her instead of Jesus. Her kindness and goodness was so transparent that she transcended cultures and generations and became a worldwide figure. Mother Teresa said, by blood, I'm an Albanian. By citizenship, an Indian. By faith, I'm a Catholic nun. As to my calling, I belong to the world. As to my heart, I belong entirely to the heart of Jesus. She said this, let no one ever come to you without leaving better and happier. Be the living expression of God's kindness. Kindness in your face, kindness in your eyes, kindness in your smile. By her death in 1997, a small group of 13 had grown to over 4,000 sisters running orphanages, AIDS, hospice, and charity centers worldwide. They cared for the refugees, the blind, the disabled, the aged, the alcoholics, the poor, the homeless, victims of floods, epidemics, famines, you name it, they took care of them. She poured out kindness on those who could give nothing in return, and she accepted nothing in return. She spent so much time with Jesus, so much time walking in the Spirit, that God gave her a heart so full of goodness that it overflowed to the least of these. When I think of her, I think of Jesus' words to all of us. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see a stranger and welcome you and naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison or visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say, when you did this to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Supernatural kindness begins where our kindness ends. We all have an ability in our flesh to reach a certain level of kindness. When we exhaust that, that's when we begin to see the supernatural kindness of God flow through our hearts. Ephesians 4, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Christians aren't called to one-time kindness. It's to become the essence of who we are. I often hear Christians in their arrogance say, these people only come to church on Easter and at Christmas. And I often think, that's okay, we only reach out to them at Easter and Christmas. Christians who are filled with the Holy Spirit should exude kindness to everybody. I don't care who they are. Particularly those that have been overlooked. Every day and every moment, if we walk in step with the Spirit, God is looking for the hurting. David essentially adopted Mephibosheth. He was all in, totally committed. Whatever you need, I'm there. He wasn't just kind on Thanksgiving Day or at Christmas. He's there every day, 24-7. Mother Teresa, the same. Every fruit that we will discuss is to be expressed to those who cannot reciprocate it. Show love to those that are unlovable. Show joy to those that have no joy. Show peace to those that have none. Be patient with those that are impatient. But there's more to this story. David's kindness to Mephibosheth isn't over. Years later, Mephibosheth has eaten hundreds of meals at the king's table. David continues to show kindness every day. But now David's on the run. One of those sons has turned against him, Absalom. And David doesn't want to fight his son or kill his son, so he flees. 
David's first thought, where's Mephibosheth? Is he coming with me? Samuel, 2 Samuel 16, 3, and the king said, where is your master's son? Look at that title. Where's your master's son? Ziba said, behold, Mephibosheth remains in Jerusalem. He knew who he was talking about. David had a son. For he said, today the house of Israel will be given back to the kingdom of my father. Ziba tells Mephibosheth that Mephibosheth believes that David and Absalom will kill each other. And after they kill each other, they'll go looking for the rightful heir, and it's him. Ziba tells David, Mephibosheth has turned his back on you. He thinks he can inherit the kingdom of his grandfather, King Saul. Now imagine David's heart. After all he's done, the kindness that was expressed, the most painful betrayal always comes from those closest to you. You know what? When you show kindness to people, some of them are going to stab you in the back. Some are going to disappoint you. Some are going to turn on you. It's going to happen. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting the God that sent you. But imagine David's heart. After all I've done for you, you're going to reject me? I've offered you a seat at the table. I've saved your life. Think about that the next time you take communion. David's army defeated Absalom. David comes back to the palace, and guess who's waiting for him? And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? These words have to be dripping in anger. Imagine his anger, what he must have been thinking after all I've done for you. He answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me, for your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king, for your servant is lame. What he's saying is, look, I'm lame. I wanted to go. Nobody would help me. Continues, he has slandered your servant to the Lord the king. But my Lord the king is like an angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my Lord the king but you set your servant among those who eat at the table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? He's throwing himself on the mercy of the king. David doesn't know who to believe. Do I believe Ziba or Mephibosheth? Somebody's lying. You know what David does? He tells Mephibosheth, take half of all I've given to you and give it to Ziba. And since he can't tell who's telling the truth, he just splits everything between the two of them. And Mephibosheth said to the king, let him have all of it, since my lord the king has come safely home. Lord, he can have everything. I don't want any of it. You see, I don't want any of your riches. I don't want any of the things that you're pouring out on people. I just want my seat at the table. I want to know I have a place there. I want to eat my meals with the king. I don't want your stuff. I want you. Don't miss the foreshadowing in this story. Mephibosheth wanted more than anything to be in a right relationship with David. He realized that his place at the table was more than anything he could pursue on earth. There's nothing David could give him more important than his relationship with the king. You remember what I told you when we started this series? 
that the one thing I wanted all of us to understand in this series is that there is nothing on this earth that is more valuable and more important than your relationship with Jesus Christ. Nothing is more important. Let me share with you my fear. I'm concerned that you're going to hear this sermon and you're going to leave thinking, I need to show kindness and goodness like David and Mother Teresa. And that's true. That's not the primary lesson here. What I want you to think about when you leave today, well, it's this. You know you and I are Mephibosheth, right? I mean, you realize that. We become crippled by a fall, found in a far-off, desolate place, hiding from the king, hearing that he might be kind to us, but not knowing if we can trust it, hearing that he's full of mercy, but sure, we don't deserve it. We're not really sure until we surrender and submit, and we're fearful of what he might do to us. But we also know we're powerless in his presence. We've been sought by the king. He's been pursuing us into the wasteland. He wants us to come home to him. And like Mephibosheth, many of us are not necessarily searching for the king. The king's searching for us and he found us. He's decided to pour out his kindness. We're undeserving. We can't earn it. We can't pay it back. There's nothing we can do. And yet he's decided to bless us, to save us. Not because of what we've done, but because of somebody else that was really important to the king, what they did. Someone who died long before we were born, but thought enough of us, loved us enough to make a covenant to save us. We've been saved for another's sake. Not because of what we've done, because of what Jesus has done. The favor that we receive in God's family is because of God's love for his son Jesus. And because of that, we're restored to the king's table. He makes us one of his sons, he adopts us into the family. Not based on anything we've ever done, but based on a covenant made with someone else on our behalf. We've talked before about our place at the table. One day we'll sit at the king's table, humble and broken and grateful. And we'll look around and we'll go, I don't deserve to be here. Maybe we'll look around and we'll see David, Jonathan. And maybe we'll see Mephibosheth and he'll wink at us. I know what it feels like. I have a feeling that we, when we experience the kindness that's extended to us from the heart of a very good God, that like Mephibosheth, no longer crippled, by the way, he's going to smile at us and wink. I know, because we're Mephibosheth. We've been given a great gift. God's goodness and kindness has been poured out on us. Jesus left us the Holy Spirit. We develop a relationship with the Holy Spirit. Goodness grows in our heart. We pursue and passionately chase God's heart. And then kindness is poured out of us. And we know, we know when we're pouring kindness out to other people and we see it, we can wink at them too. I know what it's like. It's crazy. 
I have this goodness. I don't know what to do with it. I got to get rid of it. And you're here. Take it. I know it's weird. Take it. Shame on us if we ever, after receiving such kindness, fail to extend it to other people. Do you know why God wants his kindness poured out on other people? Because it melts the heart of sinners. Just like it melted ours. When you realize your sin, when you realize the power of the king and all you can do is plead for mercy and kindness, and then you're given a kindness you know you don't deserve, kindness moves us to repent. You want to know what moved you to surrender to God? Somewhere buried in there is kindness. Romans 2.4, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Why do we pour out kindness on people that are overlooked? Because we want them to know Jesus and receive the same thing we have. Their seat at the table is next to us. When we're aware of our sins, it collides with God's kindness. And it moves our heart to repent. You're moved to confess and surrender, follow the king, because his kindness has been extended to you. So who has God put in your path? Who's on your mind right now? Who in your life is crippled by sin? and needs to see God's kindness poured through you to bring them to repentance, to rescue them from their fall, to restore them to the king's table. David sent a messenger to a nowhere place to find somebody that had been overlooked that the world thought was worthless, but somebody the king wanted to bless. His job was to bring them to the king so that they could experience the kindness. So is God calling you into somebody's wilderness today? That person on your mind right now. Maybe your natural goodness and kindness has ended for them. And that's where God starts to pick up. You must release the natural to allow the supernatural to flow through you. Let me repeat that. You have to release the natural. You have to release your amount of kindness, your amount of goodness, your decision on what's best, and let God's love, joy, peace, patience flow through you. As we spend a few moments reflecting, maybe you realize you're Mephibosheth. You want to believe in God's goodness and kindness and mercy and forgiveness? but you know what you've done. You know how crippled you really are and you can't imagine there's a place for you still at God's table. You think coming to the king actually means death, but it's the only way to life. Maybe God's using me to be your Zeba. Maybe you're in your wilderness right now and you realize this place may be your oasis. Long before you were born, Jesus arranged for you to be right here in this moment. You don't deserve it, you can't earn it. The king has poured out his goodness and kindness into your world. You've been offered a seat at the king's table. All you have to do is in faith believe that Jesus died for you. There's no punishment at the altar of God. 
You may be shaken. You may be fearful, but when you get down here, it's His kindness and goodness that's going to be poured out on you. Maybe you want to come to the altar the next few minutes and just ask for forgiveness. Maybe you've taken for granted what it means to have a seat at the table. Maybe God's bringing to your mind somebody you haven't been that kind to. Maybe somebody you really don't want to be kind to. But he's calling you into the supernatural space where he works and you don't. Perhaps you've been unwilling to go. You really don't want that person to receive God's kindness. They really shouldn't be here. They shouldn't take a seat at your table. Come and confess that to God. Ask him to burden you for that person, to fill you with his goodness until it pours out on people you don't even want to be good to, but you can't help it. Maybe you just want to tell God thanks for loving you because of Jesus, for having a place at the table or for allowing you to be used by the Holy Spirit to bring others into the King's kindness. Let me close with a quote from Mother Teresa. At the end of life, we'll not be judged by how many diplomas we've received or how much money we've made or how many great things we've done. We'll be judged by, I was hungry and you gave me to eat. I was naked and you clothed me. I was homeless and you took me in. Hungry not only for bread, but for love. Naked not only for clothing, but for human dignity and respect. Homeless not only for want of a room of bricks, but homeless because of rejection. We're all Mephibosheths. No one deserves their place at the table. We're there because of God's goodness and kindness. You come. The altar's open.